sometimes we miss things because we're just not observant. Sometimes uh, we miss things because life is just going by absolutely way too quickly. Sometimes we miss things because they just seem inconsequential, unimportant, or trivial. And when I was going through this, mapping out this series in Acts, I found myself deeply troubled, troubled by uh, Festus's appraisal of why Paul was held in prison. And, and more troubling was his, his assessment, his appraisal of Christ. It was a simple word that he said in here, just a simple phrase, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but we've got to remember that the Apostle Paul was under house arrest in Caesarea, just waiting to be transferred to Rome. Festus, who was the governor during this time, heard Paul's defense before his accusers, the Jewish, Jewish folks, and he asked if Paul was, would be willing to go to Jerusalem. And Paul, knowing full well that if he would be transferred to Jerusalem, he would probably be killed along the way and not get a fair trial if he did make it. So Paul exercised his, his free right to appeal to Caesar. But that meant that Festus now had to send along charges that warranted his case going to Caesar. And as Festus was pondering this, he realized he was new to the area, un unfamiliar with the Jewish customs and all that was really going on. He saw that he was kind of being used as a toy, being played back and forth by the Jewish people, the people he was supposed to govern over. And so what did he do? He took the opportunity of using King Agrippa, a man who was nominally a Jew, well familiar with the Jewish customs, to help him discern this case. And what we have in verses 18 and 19 really are kind of Festus's summary of the case to Agrippa. It's really kind of shop talk going on between two rulers that were going on. Here you, you kind of hear this flavor of what is going on in verses 18 and 19. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Kind of this, man, I, I'm trying to understand all this, and I was kind of thinking something else would be taking place, but apparently that's not what the case is. Rather, they, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserts to be alive. What this, this case does, it, it has Agrippa and Bernice and Festus representing one view of the resurrection. And on the other hand, we have Paul's testimony of another view of the resurrection. This morning we're going to see that while the world views the resurrection as inconsequential, unimportant, trivial, the Christian view has it as the most important fact in history. The most important fact. The world, world says it's inconsequential, and we pick that up in, in 18 and 19. You can basically paraphrase what he says. I thought they were going to accuse Paul of something absolutely serious, like murder or, or treason. But instead, they had just something silly to dispute about, about their religion. No big deal, just some dead man whom Paul asserts to be alive. 
Paul thinks they're alive. Everybody else says he's dead. It's just a matter of their religion. So I want you to notice this morning at least four things about the world's view of the resurrection. First, the resurrection is no big deal. The resurrection is no big deal. Festus says the matters that the Jews accused Paul of were not such as the crimes that he was expecting. He was downplaying. It's not a big deal. He thought it might be really important, something of Roman law. Maybe Paul was a mass murderer and he was going to have this first major case, a breakthrough. Or maybe Paul was plotting to assassinate Caesar or one of the high-ranking officials in the area. Maybe he was planning a revolution against Rome and was training up guerrillas in the desert. But then he found out that it wasn't anything that important. It wasn't anything important. Just a dispute about a dead man. A dead man that Paul says was alive. No big deal. That's one. The, the world says, listen, the, the resurrection is no big deal. But the world also says that the resurrection is a matter of private opinion. Matter of private opinion. Festus said they had certain points of, of dispute about with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus. But Festus was at a loss. How do I even begin to investigate these things? In effect, he says, listen, it's the Jews' opinion of such matters. It was Jews' opinion versus Paul's opinion. One religion versus another religion. Everyone is free to believe what they want about religion. And since there's no factual way of deciding between one religion or another, what do I do, Agrippa? What do I do? And that's the way it is for even today, isn't it? The world's view, way of viewing Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen, it's a free country. It's a free country. You can believe what you want to believe, and I can believe what I want to believe, but don't force your religious views on me in any way. After all, religion is just a matter of private opinion. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of a man by the name of uh, William Wilberforce. Has anybody ever heard of this historical guy? William Wilberforce was an outspoken uh, Christian uh, back in the late 18th century. And William Wilberforce was trying to abolish slave trade in England. One of his opponents, Lord Melbourne, when all this was going on, William Wilberforce was working hard to uproot slavery in England. And one of his opponents, Lord uh, Melbourne, angrily commented this. Things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade private life. That's the world's view. Still today, isn't it? Other people are free to be religious as long as it does not confront me. They can believe what they want, but don't let them dare try to apply their beliefs to my life. The world says there's no way to decide on matters of religion. It's just one subjective opinion versus the next. The world also views the resurrection as not being factual at all. Not a fact. Festus uses a word for religion that can also mean superstition. 
And he, was, he may not have intended that nuance out of a courtesy for Agrippa who was nominally a Jew. But the Greek word comes out of two words meaning to be afraid of a god or a demon and it implies that religion is something that is not verifiable. It's kind of just out there. It's in the realm of the fear of the spirit world, not in the realm of reason or fact. The world's view of Christianity has not changed much since Christianity is one of the world's religions. and It's no different than any other religion. All religions are a matter, a matter of faith, not of reason, not of verifiable truth. And that's what the world is saying. Evolution, that's, that's, that's science. Creationism, well, that's a matter of faith. Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Eastern mysticism, Christianity, take your pick or mix and match according to what you like, what you love. It has nothing to do with facts, and that's the world's view. The world also says that Jesus was not a unique person. Festus called him a, a certain dead man. To Festus, Jesus was just some religious leader who had just gone a little too far and he had gotten himself killed. Festus knew that Paul thought very highly of this Jesus, but that's just about as far as it went. And Jesus was just to him a certain dead man. And the world still views Jesus to some extent that way. Some will concede that he was a great spiritual leader and a, maybe even a powerful moral teacher. He has something to say about our morals today. Perhaps they'd even call him a religious genius. How all these things, this Old Testament book, this, these New Testament things, all somehow tied together. Genius! And others would question whether you can even separate the real Jesus from the myths that the New Testament writers created. Just read about the, the Jesus seminar. The resurrection is nice. It's a harmless idea if you, can, if you care to hold it. It's a, it's a nice idea. And it can warm every little cockle in your heart, especially around Easter time where everybody's wearing you know, their plaid or their paisleys. And the, Bob, your, your tie would be great for Easter. You know, it, it, it's just this really warm kind of fun spring holiday when we can feel good about life and, and full of hope because of the new life in nature. Spring is coming. Look at the flowers. Kind of a picture of resurrection. But basically the world holds the resurrection as inconsequential question for me is, how do you view the resurrection? If you are in Christ, if you have been purchased with his blood and you are made alive in him, how do you view the resurrection? Is it, is it something of consequence to you? Is it a weighty matter? It is, is it something that you are willing to die on the hill for? Is Jesus just this certain man that we kind of believe was died and he died for my sins? Oh yeah, oh by the way, not, he didn't stay in the grave. Three days he was there, but he rose on the third. <laughs> Yay! Okay, on with our rest of our life. 
Is Jesus just a certain dead man? Or is there something to him? For Christianity, the resurrection is the most important fact in history. Some of you will go, oh, the most important fact, what about the cross? That's where the sins are taken away. Isn't that true? The cross is really important, right? Yes. But the resurrection is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. The world says the resurrection is no big deal. Christianity says the resurrection is the most important thing. Most important fact in all of history. Listen to this. Peter says of his two letters that he wrote that they were written to stir up or arouse by means of a uh, reminder. Peter wrote these, these letters to arouse your heart, to remind you of something. In 2 Peter 3 verse 11, he said this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm stirring up your mind by way of reminder. So this morning, I'm going to give you a reminder of why the resurrection is important. And I pray folks, that this is going to stir up your sincere minds. What has God done in raising Jesus from the dead? Here are a few biblical answers. You ready, Brent? One, because of the resurrection of Jesus, death will never have any dominion over him again just so that you don't waste time writing all these things down, I'll, I'll put these out there later. Just listen. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, death will never have any rule, any reign, any weight over Jesus Christ. Death will never rule over him again. Romans 6 verse 9 says this. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death has no dominion over him. Acts 13 verse 34 says, He raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Death is done. Secondly, because of the resurrection, Jesus intercedes for us in heaven before God. Because of the resurrection. Do you get that? It's because of the resurrection. Listen to Romans 8. Jesus Christ is is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So because of the resurrection, because Christ is ruling and reigning, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, He is interceding. He is praying for us. He is still active in our life. Today, you find yourself in a crappy situation. You are not alone. Because of the resurrection, he is interceding for you now. Next, 
Jesus' resurrection was the beginning and the guarantee of our resurrection. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ had been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He was raised from the dead, but he was only the first. Kind of like when we talk about tithing, you're supposed to give off immediately the best off the top, the first that you get. Christ was the best, the first off the top of what is to come. And who is to come? Those who are in Christ. You can also see it in 2 Corinthians 4, 14. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The resurrection is, has consequence. Next, we were raised with Jesus so that our true life is now hidden in him. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says, God and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are raised with him. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will appear with him in glory. We are raised with Christ and alive with Christ. When we are in Christ, we are with Christ. We are raised with him. Next, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are born again to a living hope. Not a dead hope, a living hope. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again, not just to live, but to a living hope of someday we will be with him in all eternity to a living hope. It is continuing to, oh, we're aspiring to that day when oh, we will be before him and dining with him and enjoying him where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more addiction, no more fighting, no more anything. Oh, we long for that day. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we now enjoy his personal fellowship with us always. Always. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Because of the resurrection... This is Christ. After he was resurrected from the dead, he is with his disciples on that last moment before he, he went up into heaven, before he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Before, Jesus says, listen, behold, I am going to be with you always 
all the way to the end of the age. I am going to be with you. You're lonely. You feel like you're incapable, incompetent. You're failing. You know what? He's with you always. Always. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, he has the name above every name and every knee will bow to him. Everyone. Philippians 2, 9 through 10 says this, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Just even at the name of Jesus, because, because he has accomplished this, he destroyed sin, death, because he is alive and reigning, just even at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus kept his word. His resurrection is proof that Jesus is one who keeps his word. Matthew 17, 22. Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. It's proof positive that Jesus keeps his word. Go on to the next one. The resurrection of Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and the promises of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 4. He was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, with the scriptures. Jesus is proof positive that God keeps his promises and that scripture is true. Acts 13, 30, 32 to 34. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Because Jesus was raised, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit and poured out the Spirit on us. Acts 2, 30, 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, what did he do? He poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Pentecost. It was a beautiful picture. Jesus accomplished it, received the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't keep the promise of the Holy Spirit to himself. What did he do? He poured it out. Because Jesus is raised, he can still heal the way he did on earth. Let me say that again. Because Jesus is raised, he can still heal the way he did on earth. He's not dead. Jesus is not a dead God that we worship. He's alive. And that has consequences. Listen to Acts 4, 10. 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. It's proof. This, Jesus is dead. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And the apostles are saying, proof positive. Jesus still heals. That means no matter what you are going through, what pain, what misery, what addiction you might be going through, I don't care what the addiction is, if it is from, man, I spend way too much time playing Angry Birds, being that kind of addiction, to pornography or uh, cocaine or alcoholism or whatever your degree of pain is. Jesus is alive and therefore he is able to heal you today from all your sins, all your pains, all your destructive attitudes and actions. He is alive and he continues to heal today, now. Because of the resurrection, hear this also, because of the resurrection, he gives repentance and forgiveness of sins. Acts 5.31 God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God exalted him for a purpose. Not just a showy place, but he was exalted for your repentance to turn back to God or turn to God and so that you might receive forgiveness. This is all because of the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, he is now appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. Acts 10, 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17, 31. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Speaking of Jesus. Since Jesus is raised from the dead... He has come to judge in righteousness the world. He's come to be your judge and Savior. God secured our justification by raising Jesus from the dead. Romans 4. And justification means... Uh, our, our, our standing before God is now made right. We have been moved from the column of guilty to the column of innocent because of the work of Jesus Christ. His blood is applied to us. We are now in Christ. And when God looks at us, he is looking through the lens of Jesus Christ and he is saying, ah, my child. And God secured our standing by raising Jesus from the dead. Listen to Romans 4, 25. 
He was delivered up for our trans trespasses and raised for our justification. Two more. The risen Christ takes the place for us that the law, takes the place for us that the law once had so that we could bear fruit for God. Listen carefully to Romans 7. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He took our place, his righteousness for our unrighteousness for the purpose of what? Bearing fruit. Fruits of the Spirit that we may bear fruit in our, our actions, our, our activities, our right standing produces a certain way that we live, that we bear fruit. And here's the last one. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, he now has the glory for which we were made. Our ultimate destiny is to see him as he is. That's that living hope. 1 Peter 1.21 God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. John 17, 5 and 24 says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Father, I desire, desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. For what purpose? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We are saved to see and experience His glory. So my prayers, back to that, that quote from 2 Peter, that the fact of the, risen, of the resurrection and the risen Lord Jesus Himself may arouse your sincere minds to new and deeper depths of worship and life, of greater allegiance and joy. I pr my prayer, like I said at the beginning, my prayer is that we may be a people who are overcome with the enormity and the emotion, the sheer weight of the gospel. Not just the cross, but also the resurrection. That we may, the joy and the sadness, the, the adoration may simply overtake our lives. And that we, like those primitives in East Asia, find ourselves fulfilling the purpose for which God has made us. To glorify God. 
and enjoy Him forever. And I want you to think deeply over this next week. What does it mean to be resurrection people? Some of you experienced at, at a certain moment and you can remember it so vib- vividly. You can, remember, you can remember smells. You can remember taste. You can remember exactly where you were when all of a sudden Jesus encountered you and he took you out of your life of sin and he transplanted you into this new kingdom of life and you thinking about it almost brings you to tears again. That is resurrection. And we are resurrection people. We are people who are alive with Christ, anchored deeply in Christ. And every moment that you breathe again and exhale again is an opportunity to say, yes, I'm alive because he is alive. This breath that I have is a reminder that I'm alive in Christ. And therefore I am changed and how I look at this world The resurrection matters. The resurrection is consequential. It has deep implications for my life now. 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 And hopefully that will change the way you deal with people in this Thanksgiving week. Many of which that you may encounter are dead. Spiritually dead. But your hope in the resurrection says, I want to give you life. Let me tell you about Christ. He has given me life. The poison in my heart, gone. The life I have, eternal. Like Paul, let me tell you my story. My Damascus road of meeting the Lord. Crucified, but not dead. Allah.